Tonight's reading of God's Word is from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed on the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thank you, Scotty. I appreciate it. And good evening, everyone. Uh, again, welcome. I realized I didn't tell you who I was when I stood up here before. Uh, most of you know, but for those of you who do not know, my name is Dave Hahn. Um, I'm very, very glad. We are very glad as Disciples Church that you have joined us in worship tonight, especially to those of you who are guests. A special welcome to you as well. Uh, it is my privilege tonight to be able to open God's Word with and for you. As Scott read, we are in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Our son Seth uh, just turned 14 a few days ago, uh, so we're we're headlong into the into the teenage years. We're really stepping on the gas and and heading towards it. And um, I, I I realized I don't actually have much recollection of my own teenage years, uh, but what I do remember, unfortunately, is the dumb stuff that I did. And one of my favorite dumb stories is when I was about 17, I decided that I wanted to buy a car. My dad told me to look in the classified ads because that's what you did at the time. Who remembers that? Before there was Google and cars.com and Auto Trader and all that jazz, you would actually look in the newspaper and they would list them according to make and then year. I kind of knew what my, my, my price range was, therefore I was looking in older vehicles. And I decided to call around with some of the ones that I had found and see what was available. I found one I was interested in for 1600 bucks and went to take that one for a test spin. Uh, I really liked the car. It was in my price range, so I decided to make an offer. I didn't want 
to lose out on this car because there weren't a lot like it. So I offered the guy $1,800 for his $1,600 car. I offered $1,800 for his $1,600 car. Of course, the seller was delighted. (laughs) All I needed to do now was to talk to my dad and get him to agree to let me withdraw my money to be able to buy the car. So I called him and I told him about the car, what it would cost and what I offered, to which he was horrified. And he said, David, you offered him more money than what he was asking? You don't understand how buying and selling cars works. And I didn't. He was right. I didn't know, but I know now. And unfortunately, it took an embarrassing circumstance to teach me. And in today's passage, we find Jesus' disciples in an embarrassing situation, whether we recognize it or not where those who have walked and talked with Jesus over the past two-plus years needed a lesson as to how faith in Jesus works. And it's an important lesson because faith is the means through which Christians live. So beginning in verse 14, We read, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John were coming down from the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. And in his transfiguration, Jesus revealed to these three who he truly was in a new and miraculous way. They saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. They saw Jesus' glory made manifest in a radiant, intensely white appearance, and they heard the voice of God say about Jesus, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Do you know that God still speaks those words to each of us today? To all of mankind, to you and to me, by his word and through his spirit, God says, here is who Jesus is. And this is what I expect of you regarding him. So we often ask the question, it's an easy one to ask, do you believe in God? But maybe we should be asking this question instead. Who do you say Jesus is? And are you listening to him? Who do you say Jesus is? And are you listening to him? The mountaintop experience was a foreshadowing of what the author of Hebrews was trying to make clear. The whole book of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is the center point of God's salvation story. And salvation for all of mankind is wrapped up in who he is, what he said, and what he has done. Jesus is the fullness of all who came before him, and he is the fullness of everything and everyone who would follow after him. He is the center point. Everything points towards him, and everything after him points backwards to him. 
He is the true Moses who rescues and leads his people into the promised land. He is the true Elijah who stands before God on our behalf and leads us in to righteousness. And in seeing him this way, we are transformed. That's what the Mount of Transfiguration was about. Seeing Jesus for who he actually is and being transformed because of it. Continuing in verse 16 of Mark 9, we read, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So upon their return, Jesus and the three who were with him found the remaining disciples and the scribes arguing. And based on the context of these verses, the argument was likely about the disciples' attempt to try to heal a demon-possessed boy, and the scribes likely trying to discredit Jesus and his disciples because they were unable to do so. As one commentator put it, Jesus found disputing scribes, a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples. That's what he found on the way down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And notice how this distracted father describes his son to Jesus, a mute, seizure-ridden boy who turns rigid while he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and throws himself to the ground. This was his son. And this is not the first time that we have seen behavior like this in Mark, nor is it the first time that we have seen behavior like this described as demon possession. Back in Mark 5, we learned of the man who was possessed by multiple demons, and Jesus cast those demons out into a herd of pigs who ultimately ran off a cliff to their deaths. And in that passage, we talked about the idea that what our modern culture calls mental illness might very well be demon possession. Although, and this is critical, even if that is true, it is only possible for non-believers. Only non-believers are able to be possessed that way. Followers of Jesus Christ are identified by the fact that they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God and Satan cannot possess them. There is no room for him. But we need to remember, friends, that Satan loves to hide. He loves to destroy and to deceive. And in some cases, he accomplishes all of that through the physical and the emotional problems of non-believers. Friends, there are many who have said it, and each one is correct. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. But Jesus and those standing around him here in Mark 9 were not fooled. In today's passage, the explanation for the boy's behavior is broadly understood to be satanic. There is no question, it seems. Peter, who relayed this story to Mark, believed it to be so. If he didn't, we wouldn't be reading about it this way, would we? 
The boy's father certainly believed it. In fact, the father believed that all of the boy's afflictions were the result of the demon within him. If you look at what he said, that's what he believes the problem is. He doesn't seem to be confused about the why. He realizes that his boy didn't have physical problems. He had a demon problem. A demon who made him deaf and mute. Not a deaf and mute boy, but a demon who made his boy deaf and mute. A demon who caused him to seize and to scream and convulse. This was the kind of power this demon had been given, at least for now. And in response to those standing nearby, Jesus said this, and this is verse 19. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. O faithless generation. That is not a great label to have cast upon you by Jesus, is it? So, who is Jesus referring to with such a rebuke? Is it the scribes? Is it the boy's father? Is it the disciples? Yes. Yes. Likely all three groups could have qualified and did qualify for such a statement from Jesus. But more specifically, Jesus was directing his comments toward the disciples who tried to cast out the demons. In the parallel accounts of this story, if you want to look at it on your own, in Matthew 17 and Luke 9 give us much greater insight into that idea as to how Jesus was seeing the disciples in light of the fact that they could not cast out this demon. So the disciples had spent, up to this point, nearly every moment of the past two years or more with Jesus. They have witnessed countless miracles and evidence of who Jesus is and what he can do, and even they themselves had cast out demons, but for whatever reason in this particular case, they did not believe. And according to Jesus, the fact that they did not believe was the problem. That was the problem. It is always the problem. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So what man could not do in this circumstance, and what the disciples in this case could not do, Jesus did with ease. Although the demon was not happy about having to do so, it ultimately had to obey Jesus. So would you let that encourage you, Christian friends? That there is no enemy, neither in heaven nor on earth, that is not subject to King Jesus. No enemy that does not have to listen to him, that does not have to obey him. 
Even Satan and his demons recognize the lordship of Christ and have to obey his commands. Have you ever thought of that? That these are not wild dogs off their chains? So, what can anyone do to us that God does not first allow and ultimately reign over? What can anyone do to us that God does not first allow and ultimately have reign over? If God in Christ created the whole universe, and He did, then He is Lord over that same universe. And there is nothing outside of His care and His control. And in these passages, we find a father who is desperate for Jesus to exercise his care and control over his son. So the question for you, friends, is what are you desperate for Jesus to exercise his care and control over? What feels out of control in your life? And you just need to know that Jesus cares. You need to know and believe that he is in control. Because he does care. And he is in control. Picking up at the end of verse 22, listen to what the Father says. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Compassion and help. That is what the Father wanted, and it is what Jesus longs to give. We see it not only in the verses that follow as Jesus ultimately heals the boy, but we also see it in Jesus' interaction with the Father. Look at verse 21. And Jesus asked his Father, how long has this been happening to him? Friends, there is a hidden beauty in this question, and the hidden beauty is this. Jesus cares about our hurts and our pains. Why do I say that? Because Jesus knew how long this had been going on with the boy, and yet he asked him. He's God. He knows everything. He wasn't looking to gain information. Jesus knew and knows that in addition to the power that we look to him for to change our circumstances, he knows that we need someone who understands We don't just need power, we also want a person. We need Emmanuel, God, with us. He knows that we need one who understands, we need one who sympathizes and who empathizes with us. Do you know that that's why Jesus is called a sympathetic high priest in the book of Hebrews? So that nobody in this room and nobody in all of history is able to say, Jesus doesn't understand? Whatever it is that afflicts you, whatever it is that you are looking for him to control and care over, Jesus says, I know. We need someone who will come to us, and he did, to listen to us, and he does, and to meet us where we are. And that is exactly who we have in Jesus Christ, my friends. One filled with power, yes, but also compassion. He cares about what's going on. We sang it earlier, who is like the Lord our God? Continuing in verse 22, 
The man says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Friends, in all three gospel accounts, we see a father with enough faith to come to Jesus. Matthew's account tells us that he came on his knees. But it is in Mark's gospel alone that we see a father who admits his doubts and who admits his unbelief. And in this father, we find one who is like us, one who sometimes struggles to believe. He wasn't sure that Jesus could help. Do you notice that he didn't ask a will you question? He asked a can you question. Will you questions have plan and purpose in mind? Is this part of your plan? Is this part of your purpose? But the father clearly believed that Jesus would, otherwise he wouldn't have come. But by asking a can you question, can you questions being about whether or not you possess the power to do it is maybe the most confusing part. I mean, this man in particular knew well all that Jesus had done in and around his region. His power was on full display. The whole region was talking about everything that he had done. That's why he came to Jesus in the first place. But still, this father struggled to believe. And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Friends, how often do you and I doubt and worry and fret despite a long list of evidence and of history that God is good, that God is faithful, and he is infinitely powerful to provide all that we need, even much more than we would dare ask for. And still we are quick to revert to unbelief and worry and self-driven effort. I know that you have come through before God, but I am not sure that you will this time. I'm not sure that you can this time. Is that what we're saying? Is that what we're asking? It's much easier to believe after the storm ceases, after the dead are raised or the hungry are fed or the demons leave. It's easier when the skies are clear. It's easier when your belly is full and all is well. But those circumstances don't really require faith, do they? It's when things are hard. And it's when all seems lost. And when you have no hope that faith is required. When your job is uncertain. When your marriage is in trouble. When your kids are struggling. When your health is failing. And when the people and the things that you love are in peril, it is then that we need faith 
It is then that we want to be sure of the things that we cannot see and certain of the things we hope for. But hear me on this. Faith in and of itself is powerless. Faith in and of itself is powerless. A person could have faith, as a for instance, that if they step out of a plane that they're going to fly. But gravity will soon show them that their faith has been misplaced, won't it? Friends, faith needs an object that will not crumble underneath it. It is in the power of the object of our faith that we find our hope. And for the Christian, the object, the author, and the perfecter of our faith is Jesus Christ, who loves us perfectly and can do all things. Even when we didn't follow Jesus or believe in him, hasn't he always been faithful? Think about your own life. Think about the days and the weeks and the months and the years where you walked apart from Christ. Wasn't he kind? Wasn't he faithful? Didn't he provide? If you find yourself in this room not sure that you believe at all, when have you been in need? When have you not been provided for? And if God was good to us and gave us all that we needed while we were his enemies, why would we ever doubt his goodness now that we are his beloved children? Why would we do that? But we do. So this begs the question then, how much faith is enough faith? In Matthew's account of this story, Jesus says that a small grain of faith the grain that he uses is a mustard seed. It's the smallest grain that you could have gotten at that time. I don't know that it's the smallest grain in the world, but it is small. He says a small grain, the grain the size of a mustard seed, can move mountains. So it is clearly not the size, the strength, or the power of our faith that matters. Rather, it is the size and the strength and the power of our God that matters. And like the disciples and the Father in this story, our faith fails when our eyes are fixed more upon our circumstances than they are upon Christ who rules over them. Our faith fails when we depend more upon ourselves than we depend upon Jesus. So, are you worried? Are you struggling? Are you desperate? Then ask yourself, in whom or in what have I put my faith? In whom or in what am I depending upon? In whom or in what have I placed my trust? Is it Jesus? The disciples lost sight of Jesus when he went up the Mount of Transfiguration, and having lost sight of him, it appears as though their faith failed. 
With Jesus walking, talking, and living among them, faith was hardly necessary. It was all happening right in front of them. But what about when Jesus isn't there? Because he wouldn't always be with them the way that he had been. And Jesus, in this moment, was preparing them for that day. The day where faith, not sight, would govern how they live. And my friends, that is what it has meant and what it means to be a Christian for the past 2,000 years. It means we believe in an invisible God who came as er to earth as a man born of a virgin. It means we trust in a death and resurrection that we did not witness and that our salvation is wrapped up in those two things. It means we understand ourselves to be indwelled and empowered by this invisible God through His Spirit. And it means that we hope for an eternal home in a heaven that we have not yet seen. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's all faith. The life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. That is how Paul described the Christian life to a letter to the Galatians. And for those who live by faith in the Son of God, how much is possible? According to Jesus in verse 23 of this passage, everything. Everything. All things are possible for the one who believes. And the Greek word for all here means all. And we see the truth of this claim on display in the life of the disciples and the Father who came to Jesus. We see faithless disciples who could not cast out a demon. And conversely, we see a father with the smallest amount of faith and a heap of doubt whose son is healed. Why? Why? Isn't it the disciples that should have exemplified faith? Not this man who'd never met Jesus before. The reason that this story goes this way is because God wants us to know that even the smallest amount of imperfect faith placed in an all-powerful Son of God makes everything possible. The smallest amount of imperfect faith placed in an all-powerful God makes everything possible. And Jesus used a stranger who had not walked and talked with him for two years to make that point. He was teaching the disciples, and I think he's teaching you and I. So why teach this lesson? Because faith is the only means by which Christians live this life. At least until Jesus returns. And the Bible tells us that faith is no longer necessary because we'll have sight. Our faith will become sight. So we are grateful for the faith that God gives, but it gets better. 
when we find our faith failing us, and we will, we can ask God for help. We can ask God for help because he knows and he understands. Look at verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So while we often ask each other and we ask others, do you believe, perhaps the better question to ask is this, do you want to believe? Okay, so you don't believe. Do you want to? Because God responds to that heart desire too. He responds to the one who wants to believe but is struggling to do so. Faith in God is a gift of God. Faith in God is a gift of God. We do not produce it. We do not conjure it. We do not develop it on our own. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he wrote, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what is the it and the this that Paul is referring to in verse 8? It is the gift of God. This is not your own doing. What is the it and the this? I think that most people associate the word it and this with grace and salvation, but not faith. Because we all understand that grace is from God, but we think, falsely so, that faith is from us. But is that what Paul said? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So what's not your own doing? What's the gift? Salvation by grace through faith. That's the it and the this. Salvation is a gift by grace through faith. All of that is not our own doing. All of that is a gift. Grace and faith. Why? Why does it all have to be a gift? Well, so that no one can boast. So no one can boast. Here's what I mean. If grace was a gift, but faith was up to us, and then we put that faith in Christ, we would get to boast about it. Do you see where I put my faith? I chose correctly. Not only would we get to boast about where we placed our faith, but we would get to judge and condemn others for not having chosen so wisely, wouldn't we? But if grace and faith are gifts, and they are, we have no cause to brag or boast. We only can receive them with gladness and tell others where they too might freely receive them, in whom they might freely receive them. So what of unbelief? Where does that come from? Well, in a very real way, the Bible would make this case. Unbelief is our natural state. 
from the moment that sin entered in the world and human beings became twisted and cosmic rebels to God, unbelief became our natural state. But the unbelief of the Father in this passage, I think, wasn't rooted in the rejection of or the refusal of God. That's not where this unbelief comes from. It wasn't that sinister and it wasn't that wicked. Rather, his unbelief was rooted in a weakness of spirit and of ignorance. He just didn't know. And God in Christ was willing to help him. And he is willing to help you, and he's willing to help me. If we are willing to humble ourselves enough to ask Jesus for help when we struggle to believe to admit that you don't know what you don't know and to ask God to birth faith in you, to ask God to build faith in you, even if it's a small and imperfect faith to begin with, because that is the posture of this father on his knees before Jesus, crying out for help. Help my unbelief. So, if you've always believed but are struggling, let this be your cry. But if you've never believed and you want to, this can be your cry too. Lord, I I don't believe, but I want to. Would you help me with my unbelief? Finishing up in verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I would bet that the disciples were really confused and maybe even embarrassed embarrassed that they couldn't cast out demons as they had done so before. And so they asked Jesus about it privately. And in verse 19, Jesus had already revealed their first problem. It was a lack of faith. Oh, faithless generation. But in verse 29, we learn of a second problem, a lack of prayer, a lack of prayer. Implicit in Jesus' statement in verse 29 is that the disciples were not prayerfully dependent upon God to cast out this demon. And while all things are possible with God, nothing is possible without Him. All things are possible with God, but nothing is possible without Him. For every miracle that you and I might ask for, whether it be saving the lost, healing the sick, or restoring the broken, as well as every seemingly simple petition and request, dependence upon God in prayer through faith is where we see God do mighty things. Dependence upon God in prayer and through faith, that's where we see God do mighty things. So friends, we need to squash our self-reliant tendencies, and we all have them. 
those things that lead us to believe that we have things handled on our own. God, we don't need you for this one, but we'll let you know if things start to go bad. In the same way, we need to crush the false narrative that believes that God is disinterested or too busy to hear our cries, that he only cares about the big stuff. Friends, what parent doesn't lean into even the most mundane requests of his or her child? And we're imperfect. So when decisions need to be made, big or small, when news comes, troubling or difficult, or when things appear to be slightly out of control or completely out of control, is God the first one that we go to or is he our backup plan after our efforts and all else fails? Is God the first one that you go to? Are you prayerfully dependent upon him? Because the Christ life demands prayerful dependence upon God that is rooted in faith, even if that faith is small and imperfect. So friends, is your faith faltering today? Do you want to believe but are struggling with some measure of unbelief? You're not sure that he will, or you're not sure that he can? Then fix your eyes upon him. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. And depend upon him. Make your requests known to him. Not because he doesn't know what you need, but because by doing so we enter into faith-filled, prayerful dependence upon him. That's why we fix our eyes on him. That is why we depend upon him. That is why we make our requests known to him. Because by doing so, we are showing ourselves to be faith-filled and prayerfully dependent upon the one who can do something, not just something, all things. We admit our need for him, trusting in his power to do all that we would ask of him according to his will, according to his will, which is infinitely better than our own. Friends, our God has defeated death, our truest and greatest enemy, and all you and I provided to that effort was the sin that made it necessary. And if he has already defeated sin and death, and he has, What can't he do? What can't he do? So may our prayers this week be filled with faith in him. And where there is unbelief, may we be wise enough and bold enough to ask him for help. He will surely and he will gladly give it. Let's pray. Father God, we blush to think how slender at times our faith is. Through faith, kingdoms are conquered. Acts of righteousness are performed. Promises are obtained and the mouths of lions are stopped. We beg you, Lord, to strengthen our souls in this grace that we may never more question 
your divine faithfulness. Blessed Jesus, pour in your resources upon our poor, forgetful, and unbelieving hearts when doubts, fears, and misgivings arise. Help us to see that in all our journeys past, you have brought us through difficulties and dangers. Help us to see that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. What is difficulty when you, Lord Jesus, step in for your people? These challenges are more for the display of your glory and the exercise of our faith. So would you help us then, Lord, to look to you and not to the difficulties because we have nothing to do with them. It is enough for us that our God has promised. You can, God, and you will. How will you do it? That is your concern and not ours. But you are faithful and you have promised. And let that be enough for us. Let there be no doubt. Yes, Lord, we know your hand is not weak and all that you have said must come to pass because he who is faithful, he who calls is faithful, and he who calls and is faithful will surely do it. Help us for Jesus' sake. Amen.